All right, we will be in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 11 tonight. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Does anybody else need a sheet here? There you go, sir. Sure, yeah. Tom has some more. Does anyone else need a, a, a sheet? All right. Well, last week, we looked through one of the more difficult passages in Hebrews, and in fact, probably one of the more difficult passages in the Bible. And uh, this one is much more straightforward. And, uh, and, and actually, it's very, I think, interesting how after going through a warning passage of Scripture, a sobering one, the author turns to one of the more assuring and comforting passages that we can read through. Um, we kind of stopped last time around verse 10, where we talked about the reassurance that, uh, that he's giving to the readers that in your case we feel sure of better things, thing belonging to salvation, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He pointed to their love for God and their love for each other as the indication that they truly have the Spirit. And he concludes in verses 11 and 12 what he desires of these readers. He wants each of you, he says, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so he's ending on this hope, on this note of assurance, this, this desire that we would have earnestness, have full assurance of hope, that as we consider the promises of God, it produces a confidence in us that produces an earnestness, a zeal, a fervency in following Christ. In other words, we should not walk away worried or concerned, but comforted and reassured in who God is and what he has promised. And as we conclude verse 11, he, he, he mentions that key word, promises, and that is going to be the subject of the following verses from verse 13 down through verse 20. We're going to talk about the promises of God. We see it in verse 13. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham obtained the promise. We see promise again in verse 17. We see it, let's see, I think that's about it. There's oath in there as well. Um, the point of this passage is to give you bedrock, 100% confidence that if God says something, if God promises something, to believe that promise is the most safe thing you can possibly do. And we're going to see how he explains that for us tonight. Um, before we jump into that, what has God promised us? Can, can, can you share with me some of the promises that God has given us as Christians? Tom. Peace. He has given us, he has promises us peace. Absolutely. A home in heaven. A home in heaven. Eternal life. Yeah, eternal life. Mike. Always be with. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Good. Protect. Yeah, protection. What else? 
Forgiveness. Yes, he's promised forgiveness. Yes. He healed my eyes so I can see. Amen. Amen. He heals. Yeah. Yes. Comfort. Comfort. He promises comfort to us. Anything else? Wisdom. wisdom. Let him ask in faith and he will give wisdom to those who ask. James 1. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. There's another promise, right? Becky. What's that? Trials. Well, that's a downer, but you're right. (laughs) It's true. He promises to give us trials, and he promises to give us strength and grace through those trials, right? Yes. Security. Security. Good. Anything else? We could keep going. We could make this our study for tonight, right? We could just list all the promises of God. As we look at this passage tonight, the author points our attention to the reliability of God's promises. That it's God's promises that motivate us to live a life of zeal and fervency. But in order for, for you to get excited about a promise, you need to have a strong confidence in that promise. Can you give me some reasons why you might be skeptical about a promise that someone gives to you? We're not talking about God's promises right now. We're just talking about promises in general. What, what might be a reason why you're skeptical their inability to follow. Okay, so maybe they have really good intentions, but, but their ability to actually deliver, you're skeptical about. All right? Yeah? Okay, yeah, so there's trust issues, right? If you don't fully trust uh, the individual making the promise, then you'll be skeptical about that. Gideon? Yeah, so, so they, they could be the most trustworthy person on the planet. But if you don't know them well, if you don't know them, then you're not going to have that trust that needs to be built. Um, or past failures, like Gideon mentioned. Yeah? Um, your own ability to accept what they've promised and do justice. Okay, so yeah, maybe it's just your own skepticism, right? your own inability to fully believe uh, the promise, right? Anything else? Yeah, Becky. Okay, so just general trust issues, right? You may be talking to someone who has complete reliability and ability to do it, um, but you've been burnt by other people, and so you generally have a distrust for anyone that guarantees anything, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, similar to what, what Franny was saying. The, the, I don't, I'm not worthy of this, and so I'm not quite sure I can embrace or receive this promise. Lynette? Okay, yeah, so you waited a little too long. Maybe you started believing the promise. Yeah, 400 years. That's right, if you're an Old Testament uh, Israelite in that uh, in-between phase, yeah. Uh, sometimes it's just maybe, maybe it's a trustworthy person. It is, um, it, they have the ability to carry it out, but the promise itself, what is being promised is too good to be true. Right? It's just like, that, that's, that's so much. Right? You're a trustworthy person, but what you're promising is just too good to be true. What does it take for you to have complete, total confidence in a promise? When we're talking about a promise for another human being, even someone who's fully trustworthy and proven themselves to be trustworthy, it's hard to, even in those cases, say, I have 100% 
confidence that they will deliver on that promise because there's so many other variables, right? There are circumstances outside of people's control. Someone could be trustworthy, but life happens. And so it's almost impossible to fully, you're right there, David, you made it? All right, good. Um, the, uh, so it's, it's almost impossible to fully have 100% uh, uh, trust in a promise. But let me give you an illustration. All right, let's imagine that you've promised, you've been promised a great sum of money, a huge inheritance, millions and millions of dollars. All right, too good to be true. All right, you, you would need some serious assurance before you got really excited and, and went out and buy your new Lamborghini, right? <laughs> now, for example, like if you, if you pulled up your email and you got a sketchy looking email in your spam folder saying you just inherited, right, all this money from some prince, you know, in, in Nigeria or something like that, okay? Now, you shouldn't take much stock in that promise, and you better not just go out in faith and say, I'm going to go buy my Lamborghini because I just got promised millions of dollars. But what if that promise was given to you by someone who has the means to do that, has proven themselves to be trustworthy, and what about this? What if the money had already been set aside for you? What if the money was already deposited into your bank? Would you have more confidence in the promise then? I would think so. And this is what happens in this passage. God gives us a great promise in the gospel, and then he backs up that promise. How does he do it? He points to two things. He points to his unchangeable, trustworthy character, and then he points to the work that Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf. And that's how the passage ends. That he's promised you something, and as a guarantee, Jesus has already secured it. It's already in the bank. It's already been deposited. And we walk away from this passage with complete bedrock confidence. Skip down to, to verse 18, where we see this encouragement. Says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So these verses are given to us so that we will have such a firm belief in the promises of God, all those promises that we just listed out, on top of just the promise of salvation, the promise of eternal life. We're supposed to have such a firm belief in these promises that we're willing to give it our all in the pursuit of those promises. They remove all doubt that might slow us down. We can run the race of faith with certainty and confidence, not wavering or wondering if it's all worth it because his promises are reliable. So let's see how he makes this case. He's going to begin in verse 13, going down through verse 18, to highlight God's unchanging character. And we're given an example of a story. And who does he point to? He points to Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham. And so we have a case study here uh, to show us how reliable God's promises are. Verses 13 through 15 recount the story. God makes a promise, and Abraham believes that promise. In verse 14, we see the content of the promise. What does he promise Abraham? Surely I will bless you and will multiply you. And here's an interesting phrase that we find in the end of verse 13. He swore by himself. Why did God swear by himself? When did he swear by himself? At what point in the story do we see God doing this? Well, we see it 
in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there if you like. I'll go ahead and read it. Genesis chapter 22, God is making a promise to Abraham. And this is in context right after um, Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, and then he's stopped by God, and, uh, and he provided the ram in the thicket. And in verse 15, it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God says this to Abraham after he is offering up his son, who was the son that God had promised him. And this is really important to note because God had made a promise already to Abraham saying, I'm going to give you a son. And, 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 and through the son, you will be made a great nation. And so when we read the promise in Genesis chapter 22, it's a reiteration of a promise that he already made earlier in Genesis chapter 12. That through his wife, Sarah, who was old, she was going to give birth to a son, and this would be the promised son um, that God is giving him. And although they originally doubted this promise, we find that God is faithful, and he gives them a son. But then in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his promised son, a shocking command. And yet Abraham knew what God had promised. Let me show you how confident Abraham was in the promises of God. So he knew that Isaac was the promised son. And God says, offer up your son Isaac. If we were to read later in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, we see the story. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's making the point, this was the promised son that God had given him, and he's about to offer him up as a sacrifice. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to, to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is saying that when Abraham offered up Isaac his son, he was so confident in the promises of God. He was so confident that this was the, the, the fulfillment of God's promise. He said, well, if my son dies, obviously God's just going to bring him back to life because this is the promised son. And not even death is going to stop that. That's, that was the faith of Abraham. And after the ram in the thicket was provided, God repeats this promise again. And this time, he seals it with an oath. He swore by himself, which we see here in our passage. In verse 16 and 17, give us the reason why God swore by himself. Verse 16, look there. Why did God do this? There's no one greater, right? So verse 16, he, he highlights a custom. 
It says, when people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So this is something that people did. They would swear by something greater than themselves in order to seal their oath. In fact, Jesus alludes to this practice in Matthew 23 when the Pharisees give rules about what to swear by based off what was greater. Like I remember growing up, when my, my buddies on the block, would, we'd get together and, and, and hang out, and, and, and they'd try to prove to me they're telling the truth. They would say something like, I swear to God, right? They were trying to add weight to their promise by swearing by something or someone greater than them. But how could God do that, <laughs> right? He can't. He can't swear by something greater than, than him because he is the greatest being. So what's the only thing he can do? He swore to God. He swore to himself. So help me me. So so help me me. That's right. Um, He swore to God. Now, did God need to do that? He didn't need to do that. Why did he not need to add that extra measure? Yeah, he's already... He's already, I mean, he's already God, right? He already made the promise. So why did he do it? Why did he add this extra measure, this extra oath saying, I swear by myself this will happen? Why do you think he did it? Okay, so he was doing it for Abraham's sake, wasn't he? He was doing it, I mean, Abraham didn't, hadn't known God for very long, going back to the, 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 the trust thing. How long do you know somebody? Abraham hadn't known him for too long. And, and, and God didn't have to add this extra measure. His word is reliable in itself. He doesn't need to add these extra layers of assurance onto his promise to make it more reliable. So why does he do it? Look at verse 17. Why did he do it? So when God desired to show the more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. All right? And that's referring to this right here. He swore by himself. He guaranteed it with an oath. He swore by himself. He didn't do that because he needed to add extra weight to his promise to keep himself accountable. He did it for the sake of Abraham and actually not just Abraham. Because who is he trying to convince in verse 17? The heirs of the promise. And who might that include? Yeah, I think that would include us as well. The heirs of the promise. The unchangeable character of his purpose. He swore by himself. Here's the point. He wants to demonstrate, to prove even more convincingly than necessary, the unchangeable character of his purpose. And he shows it to the heirs of the the promise. And here's the truth he's seeking to prove. When God promises something, his purpose is unalterable and unchangeable. There's absolutely no way that it can be changed. And so he desires to prove that truth over and above what is necessary. He wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise that his purpose is unchanging, which we see down here, right? The unchanging 
character of his purpose. That's what he's trying to prove to us is reliable. And so he promises and then he guarantees it with an oath. He wants you to believe his promises. He wants you to have a bedrock confidence. In a sense, you can say that he is compensating for our frailty and our doubt. He's going the extra mile to give us peace of mind. He doesn't have to do that. But for our sakes, for our frail, weak, doubtful souls, he says, tell you what, I'll seal it with an oath, just like, just like you guys do, right? When, when you swear by something greater, but the best I can do is swear by myself because there's no one greater than me. I want to show you how more convincingly my, the unchanging character of my purpose is. And what's the intended result? The intended result. Sorry, I got a little misaligned here. There you go. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Let me zero in on an interesting phrase here. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What are the two unchangeable things? Does anyone know? He doesn't clearly say what they are in that verse. He just said there's two unchangeable things. What do you think? His promise. Okay. Himself. Close. His promise. I mean, he is unchanging, so I'll give you half credit for it, all right? His promise and his oath. All right, so that, those, these are the two things that are unchangeable. Number one, God's promise. And number two, his oath. All right, so he promised something to Abraham. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's, that's unchangeable. And then he seals it with an oath, I swear by myself, which is also unchangeable. So why in the world do you need two unchangeable things, right? And only, one is only one is needed, right? But like if, 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 if one of those, if promises of God are unchangeable, why do you need to layer it on with a second measure, a second unchangeable thing? What's that? Two witnesses, legal Okay, it could point to some, you know, the legal, almost, almost two witnesses idea. Franny? He knows our weakness. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's... Yeah, yeah. And this is a bedrock promise, too. I mean, the Abrahamic promise. I mean, in all, through you, all the nations of the world would be blessed, right? That's, that's generations um, of, of people who will be impacted. And so he, he, make, he adds these extra layers to ensure people, listen, this is unchanging. This isn't moving. This, isn't, this, is, this is solid. Yeah, Gideon. He's directly attaching himself to the promise by making the oath, which is part of the promise, part of him. So he's mm. saying, not only am I making a promise, I'm directly saying I'm in your life and in your lineage as well. Yeah, he's connecting himself to this promise. And in fact, I'd say he's, he's staking his entire reputation on this promise, right? I'm swearing by myself. He, he's staking his whole reputation, his whole character on the sake of this promise. I think I saw another hand somewhere. No? Yeah? I was just going to say, we, we need that repetition off of this human 
cheap. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, the Pokemon, it's okay, let me tell you again what was wrong with the Pokemon. Yeah. And we, I mean, if you're parents, you get this, right? <laughs> like, you know, your, your, your child just is having a hard time believing that what you're saying is going to happen. And so you know that you're telling the truth. But for their sake, you might repeat it and you might reassure them again and again, not because you feel like you need to to make yourself more trustworthy, but for their sake, right? Because they're weak. So by two unchangeable things, the promise of God sealed by the oath of God, in which it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie about his promise. It is impossible to lie about his oath. He asks the question, is, is God incapable of anything? Yes. He is incapable of failing his promises. He couldn't do it even if he wanted to. I mean, think about it. Think about the children of Israel going through the wilderness. How many times when Israel's stubbornness and rebellion provoked God to anger, and when they were rebellious and they were hard-hearted, what was the reason that God stayed faithful? I said, I promised. For the sake of my promises... It was only on the basis of his promise that he did not destroy them because it's impossible for him to lie. Even when we have given him every reason to renounce his promises, he can't. He can't. It's impossible for God to lie. And so by layering these two unchangeable things on top of each other, what's the result? We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The word encouragement means the act of emboldening another in belief or course of action. I see a sense of emboldening. Right? The opposite being wavering, not quite sure, tentative. And, and, and when we consider the promises of God, his unchangeable purpose, the impossibility that he would ever lie, what does it result in? A, an encouragement, an emboldening to what? To hold fast to that hope set before us. What's the hope? I mean, it's, it's the promise, right? All the promises that he has given us. In fact, it's going to be specified, this hope is going to be specified in a person here in a bit. But he's called us to, to hold fast to that hope. If you go to the, the, you know, chapter 11 of Hebrews, the hall of faith, all these, all these individuals in the Old Testament, what were they doing? doing? They were clinging to that hope. They were depending on the promises of God. What gave them that assurance? It was who God is in his unchanging character. And not only is it encouragement, but again, he adds the modifier, strong encouragement. Again, this is over and above. This is great encouragement. So we could say, right, that, that I mean, God gives, God gives more assurance than he needs to so that we can have more encouragement than necessary. You can cling tightly to the hope set before you 
because you're strongly encouraged and assured that God's promises are unchangeable by nature. And he stakes his entire reputation on what he has promised. And so the desired result in the story of Abraham, who was given a promise, and we see him believe the promise, that through this promise, God wants to show us, through his unchangeable word, that we can have strong encouragement to cling to these promises that he's given us, that we have no reason to waver. Any comments, questions? Before we move ahead. Paul. As you read those verses, I can't help being reminded of some songs we sing. Yeah, like standing on the promises, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the promises of God are at the core of, of our Christian life. Um, if it weren't for the promises of God, we'd be, we'd be lost completely. Justin. I love the analogy of holding fast to the anchor and the same hold fast is literally, it's about a term, uh, a line that has tension, it's being stretched and proven to hold and it's being held by something that can't hold it, which is a dollar. And then that's the anchor of the Christ. It's a neat picture when you think about He promises those, those trials, He promises those, those hardships, yeah. but that patiently waiting um, that will be held fast. Yeah, and, and even the patiently waiting that we saw Abraham up there, right? What, what's the context of that? That's, that's him sacrificing his own son. I mean, that, and, and him having faith through that and God showing himself to be reliable and, and showing himself to be unchangeable even in that. And we're going to get to that imagery of an anchor, which I'm looking forward to because it's a good one. Um, any other comments or questions? Yes, Bobby. Really? Oh, she says there's a promise in every book of the Bible except for Titus. Titus is still good, though. You should read it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me, let me actually tell you one other story in the life of Abraham that, that, reli- that, that points to the reliability of God's promise. I love this story. This is kind of tangential, but I like it. Uh, we actually discussed this in uh, uh, First Ten class a couple weeks back. But uh, if you'd like to, turn, turn to Genesis 15. Uh, Genesis 15. Again, story of Abraham. This is another time when he is promising to Abraham what he's going to give him. And he goes through a really weird ritual that to our modern Western eyes is just kind of bizarre, all right? But it made complete sense in their day. Um, Genesis 15, uh, in verse 12, God is speaking to Abraham, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? All right, so there's, at the very outset, when, when he's first kind of talking with Abraham and, and, and he's getting to know God more and more, Abraham's still kind of questioning, like, how do I know? All right, he hasn't reached the Genesis 22 level of confidence yet. He's, he's saying, how do I know that I'm going to possess it? And so God says, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness 
fell upon him. What in the world is going on here? Why is God telling Abram to, so that's his name before Abraham, to take all these animals and cut them in half? All right. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot, this is getting weirder and weirder, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So what is going on here? This is actually a custom people would do in that day when they were making a covenant with each other, a promise with each other. They would take animals, cut them in half, separate the pieces, kind of making a path down the middle. And then they would both pass between the carcasses. And by doing this, they're saying, if either one of us break this covenant, may we become like these carcasses. That's what they're saying. We're passing through the pieces to say, may this happen to us if we break this promise. Now, in this situation, who passes through? God does. Does Abraham? He doesn't. He makes Abraham fall asleep. And God passes through the pieces. And so through that, what is God saying? I am staking everything, my entire character, on this promise. It's all on me. And it doesn't depend on you at all. That's the reliability of God's promise. So how can I know that I have the promise of eternal life, freedom from sin, the future resurrection of seeing God face to face? Because God made that promise. That's why I can have confidence in it. It's impossible for him to lie and to show the unchangeable character of his purpose in your life. He used two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, to assure you and convince you that his promises are trustworthy. So now what should we do as a response? I think this is where we actually look back up in verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And that's, where, that's why he jumps into the story of Abraham, because he just mentioned the, the imitators of those of who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That should be our response. We should, we should shake off the sluggishness, but have earnestness and full assurance of hope to the end. Through faith and patience, we can receive the promise just like Abraham did. And, we, and, and, and because God is so unchanging, we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope to give up all this world's possessions, to give up popularity, to give up anything in order to gain these promises is the safest choice you will ever make because the word of God is the only thing that is unchanging and unreliable, or, and reliable, sorry. At the beginning, we said that there are two ways that God proved the reliability of his promise. The first one was his unchanging character. We just looked at that. And then two, he points to one other thing. The fact that the work was, has already been accomplished for us. And this is where we look in verses 19 and 20. Just God's word would be enough, right? Just God's promise would be enough. Just God's oath would be enough. But he piles on all those on top of each other and then keeps adding because our confidence in the promise of God is not just dependent on who God is, 
but also on what Jesus did. So we've seen an Old Testament example in Abraham, but now we have the added benefit of seeing Christ's finished work. And in verse 19, we see this incredibly encouraging sentence. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Are you sitting here needing an anchor for your unstable and weary soul where you feel like you're just being tossed around by the waves, that there's no confidence, there's nothing certain that you can cling on to? Maybe you've been burnt time and time and time and time again by the, by the untrustworthiness of other people. What a relief this phrase is. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And you see, it says we have this. What's this? It's actually specified in this next phrase. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now we're kind of getting a little bit more specific. What is the hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain? We see it specified even more in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Just so we all are on the same page, when we see the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, what's that referring to? The temple, right? So Old Testament sacrifices, the the priest would enter behind the curtain, the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies with the blood of the sacrifice to to, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that hope that is our steadfast anchor of the soul crossed through the, past the curtain, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. And now the hope is starting to crystallize. It's brought into full view. He is a forerunner on our behalf. He's gone before us. And so, added confidence to the promises of God, Jesus ran out ahead of us. I mean, think, think about um, I don't know, walking through a jungle, right? Heavy brush, uh, trees and branches everywhere, Right? That'd be a difficult task, but if someone goes before you with a machete and is chopping down the branches and chopping down the trees and clearing a path for you, you're able to navigate and traverse through that jungle uh, all all the better. And that's kind of what it's it's kind of describing here. Forerunner has this idea of of going before, even even the idea of like a spy or like someone sneaking ahead, uh, you know, scoping out the land. He's a forerunner on our behalf. He, He traversed the, the, the path before us to clear the way. And even as we look at this curtain idea here, it's, it's the curtain that separates us from, from God's holiness. And, and when Christ died, he, he rent the veil. He tore the curtain. He cleared the way. And so not only is it the promise of God's, the, the unchangeable character of God's purpose that gives us confidence, but the fact that Jesus already sealed it. Like it's, it's the promises that we have and what we talked about that he will never leave us or forsake us, that we have peace that passes understanding, that we have forgiveness, that we have hope. All these things are based off of a finished work. Like the, the riches have already been deposited into your account. How could we not believe that? How could we not trust that? 
is completely and totally reliable. It's sure and it's steadfast. It's an anchor of the soul. You know, I wonder how many things that we've uh, set up in our life as our anchors for our soul that come woefully short of being sure and steadfast. That, that, that we have placed all of our hope. We have held fast to our own hope that we've set before us. We've created our own anchor of the soul. But it's unreliable, right? Fill in the blank for whatever it is for you. What have you been placing your hope in? And, and really, if it's not, if the very anchor of your soul isn't the work of Christ and the promises of God, then you are sure to be disappointed by whatever you have identified as your anchor. It could be another person. It could be, it could be a job that you have set out or, 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 a, or a, a hope, a vocational goal that you have. It could be, you know, it, it could be riches. It could be popularity. Maybe just the anchor of your soul is just wanting a fulfilled soul. You just want to you just want to have peace. You just want to be content. You feel empty. You feel, you, you feel discontent. And you're, you're grasping onto other things to, to have this anchor. And, and all of it is fleeting. I remember we, the youth group and I would talk about this, how you know, there's balloons and anchors in life, right? Balloons are nice and pretty to look at, and they're fun, and you can hold as many of them as you want. But they're not anchors, Right? And, and, and so many times we look at our, the balloons that we have in our life and identify those as our anchors. And then we get really mad when they pop, right? And, and, and God says, no, I, I never meant for that to be your anchor. It was a balloon. It was nice. It's fun. Those are blessings that I give you, and you can enjoy those. But they're not your anchor. And, it's, and in fact, when we place our hope in Christ as our anchor, then we can actually enjoy those balloons a lot more because we're not placing our hope in those things. Christ is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He has accomplished the work. He's finished the work. He is our great high priest. There's a song that I think we might, we might learn as a congregation uh, sometime in the future uh, entitled, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. And I just want to read to you some of the lyrics of this song, taken from this passage, obviously. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, O my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind, and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ is our anchor. What has been promised to us has been guaranteed through the finished work of Christ. He has gone before as the forerunner. He has paved the way. The money is already in our, your account. There is nothing left to do. So, can you have strong encouragement and hold fast to what God has promised? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. And really, as you look through this, you have to ask yourself, what more would I expect God to do? I mean, he's even catered to my own weakness far and above what he needs to. He's added extra layers of assurance to compensate for my own doubt. He's already accomplished it. What else does he need to do? Any comments 
or questions? Paul. This is a little off the subject, but I can't help thinking that this Saturday we're going to see an example of that story from Genesis. The bride's friends sit on one side, the groom's friends sit on the other side, and they pass between them. Are we going to have carcasses? <laughs> well, you already told me no when I asked. <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a covenant being made, and there's an accountability there. Yeah, I think we should. I mean, that'd be kind of fun. Add some carcasses in there. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yes, Justin has the pig. All right, right. This is exciting. Come on Saturday, guys. We're in for a good time. <laughs> yeah, Justin. So that last phrase, become a high priest forever. Yeah. Does that have significance to that to a Jewish person that would be reading this because of the changing of the high priest as he purified himself every year and that Jesus has replaced that forever because of that word? Is yes. And I think like in chapter 8, chapter 9, he's going to emphasize the enduring priesthood of Christ and contrast that with the temporary priesthood. We would just read over this without having that Jewish mind of that hope. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. High priest forever. We'd be like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. But, but, for, but for a Jew reading that, he's like, forever, right? No, the high priest, you know, they, they have, they're replaced constantly, right? All the time. Yeah. Oh, it's and, and just wait. I mean, when we get to chapter nine, chapter ten, the the connection between the the temple, the sacrifices, the blood, the high priests, and how Christ is the final and complete fulfillment of all those things is awesome. And I'm looking forward to that. Um, any other questions before I? Yeah, David. So uh, again, a little off the main topic, but I find it very encouraging. Remembering how Abraham um, went along with the plan to speed up the promise yeah. <laughs> of God, resulting yes. in Ishmael. Yes. And yet, God ultimately calls him, or describes him as waiting patiently. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, we, we highlighted in, 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 in Hebrews 11 kind of the positive side of Abraham's example, where he was so confident in Genesis chapter 22, but, but yeah, you, have, you, you tend to forget the earlier portions when, he, when he's first navigating and dealing with this promise that God has given him. Number one, he's not quite sure. Number two, like David mentions, he tries to speed up the process and tries to accomplish it on his own. Well, obviously it can't be Sarah, so, so, so here's, here's, here's Hagar, right? And he tries to take God's promise in his own hand. And, and and God still is like, uh-uh, no, sorry. Like, your unbelief and your doubt is not going to stop my promise. It's not going to be through her. It's going to be through Sarah, just like I said. And, and, and Sarah, you know, laughs and scoffs at this idea. And, and so you see, even in that, their doubt, their frailty, their skepticism. But God still persists in his promise. And he still fulfills it, even in that. And, and really... Abraham kind of comes, like, kind of catches up eventually, right? But that's not based off his own merit, his own work. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all in the reliability of God. That's a good point. Anything else? We see, what do we see at the very end? A familiar name. Melchizedek. When are we going to talk about Melchizedek? I mean, this is the third time he's come up. 
And uh, with no explanation about the significance, in fact, uh, the second time he's mentioned, what does the author do? He says, I really want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but you're too sluggish and slow, and you're not ready for it because you're still on the milk stage instead of the meat stage. So you guys need to wise up, and you need to catch up before I can talk to you about this awesome guy named Melchizedek and how the priesthood of Melchizedek points to Christ and all of these deep truths and, 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 and glorious doctrine that you're not quite ready for. Well, guess what? Chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. All right, we're going to dig into Melchizedek but you're going to have to wait two weeks for that, okay? Because <laughs> next week is the concert. Um, so if you want to study on Melchizedek, there's some, there's some interesting stuff in here. And again, some things hard to explain and fully grasp uh, because maybe we're still on the milk stage. I don't know. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll dig in and we will... Uh, <laughs> yeah, David, David, uh, David has come up with a phrase for this, right? Instead of beast mode, it's priest mode. We're going to go full priest mode on uh, next two weeks from now uh, as we <laughs> look into Melchizedek. All right, let me go ahead and pray, and then we will be uh, dismissed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, how good you are and how faithful you are, how reliable your promises are. Lord, I pray that the truths that we learn tonight actually carry over into our lives, that we would live as if your promises are reliable, that we would live as if the work has already been accomplished through Christ. Uh, that we would not depend on ourselves, we would not place our hope in other things, but that we would have zealous and confident and assured lives as we live for you, knowing that it is impossible for you to turn back on what you've promised us. Give us that faith and give us that